So our readings this morning, I think, introduce us to what maybe is the proper place or the proper role of religion. You know, there are, there are words in the English language that we use that we you know, kind of intuitively use them, but I'm not sure we really uh, understand what they mean, uh, such as the word literally, right? Like, literally, dude, I got a mountain full of debt, right? Or literally, dude, there's like a tsunami of grief waving over me. Um, that would actually be a figurative way of using those words, not literally, <laughs> Um, but, you know, we, we have words like that in the English language that we use, and we don't really know what they mean, maybe. And I think religion is a word just like that. I mean, just think about it for a moment. What is religion exactly? I mean, at, at this point in at least American history, it's almost like an inkblot test. I mean, if you just put religion on a, you know, like a flashcard and ask people to respond to it, you're going to get all kinds of ideas about what religion is. Well, you know, precisely religion is something like belief or sort of the belief mixed together with worship or maybe belief and worship mixed together with service or devotion to God. So, you know, that sort of thing. Well, what I think our passage this morning does is that it gives us a little peek into Jesus, into what he thought of the religious practices of the Jews of his time. And if we were to give that a headline, we might say something like, they missed the point. Now, part of what makes a passage like this really hard for us as modern Americans to understand is that for the people of Jesus's day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, the, the kind of religious leaders in total, they were thought to be the best people. You know, they weren't the scum, they weren't the Gentiles, they weren't the Samaritans, they weren't the non-practicing Jews. They were thought to be the very best people. And so for Jesus to criticize them and to say on such a high level that they were really missing the point was actually quite a big deal. And so essentially, and I think the headline that I want us to see this morning is the way they missed the point is that they had continued religious practices but had separated them from the original motive or intent or in Jesus's word, they'd separated it from the heart. So putting it positively speaking, maybe we can say that religion is a matter of the heart. That the, the true place for proper religion or the proper place for religion is an interior sort of thing. It's, it's an interior life. Uh, heart can also mean will or spirit. But here's where we have to be careful. And that is that we can't become dualists. Like we can't think that, well, then the only thing that really matters is something invisible, something unseen, something in me. Because Christianity is not a source of dualism. It, it doesn't mean that um, nothing out there matters. That like, so nothing I touch, nothing out there, you know, in, in the sense of Jesus doing that internal, external thing with things outside of you. It doesn't mean those things outside of you don't matter or don't exist or aren't important. It just means they're not ultimate. So when Jesus talks about religion as being a matter of the heart, which again, heart in the biblical language just means that sort of fundamental core part of what it means to be a person. Or you might think of it as something like the executive center that controls the rest of our, the parts of our being, including, as I said, will. So will or volition is simply the power or capacity to either initiate something or to forbid something. 
So whenever you're making a decision that has a yes attached to it, something you will initiate, or or a no attached to it, something that you won't do, so the capacity to bring about affirmative yeses or negative noes, that's our will. Or spirit. So when the, again, this is a tricky word. When the Bible uses the word spirit, it means something like heart, our fundamental nature, as distinct from our bodies. So it includes our bodies and is organically connected to, but it's just that way of making that inner part of us distinct. So I think what Jesus is saying is something like this, that religion is meant, and the practices of religion are meant to form in us a well-kept heart or you might say a well-kept will or spirit, such that from that place in us, a person is prepared for and capable of responding to the situations of life in ways that are good and right. So our wills are able to choose the good and avoid evil, and all the other dimensions of ourself are in alignment with that will or spirit or heart. But here's another place where we need to be careful. Never is perfection in view here. Like none of us are ever in this life gonna have a perfectly zipped up mind, heart, body, soul, will, emotions, thoughts, spirit. It's just not available to us in this lifetime. But it is what religion properly construed is shooting for. It's shooting for a kind of alignment of all the various aspects of our being to the ruling and reigning of God, to God's activity in the world. Now, I know when I sound like this, we might think of what's known today and has been known for a decade or so or longer as sort of the spiritual formation movement. Well, who's the leader of the spiritual formation movement? Like, where did this come from? So we might say, well, the leaders are the mothers and fathers of the early church. Or we might think, no, the the, the leader of the spiritual formation movement are medieval mystics. Or in more contemporary language, we might think, no, it's Nowen or Foster or Peterson or Willard or somebody like that. And I would want to say no to all that and say no to everybody I just named as simply a follower. The, the spiritual formation movement is better classified and identified and named as the Jesus movement. Like a focus on the interior life didn't start with Merton. With all due respect. <laughs> And it didn't start with Henry Nouwen. And Richard Foster didn't invent it. This is a Jesus movement. And for Mark, remember, who's always being an evangelist, he's just not recounting for us here the content of Jesus' brilliant teaching on true religion of the heart. He's demonstrating Jesus' authority over the unfolding narrative of God's story. I mean, this is a big thing that Jesus is doing because he's actually confronting the law. And for the Jews, there was nothing more important than the law. And he's also confronting the opinions and practices of the law of his day. And so what I would want to say is it's been a 2,000-year, generally speaking, failure to take Jesus seriously regarding religion of the heart and to avoid the dualisms that can happen. That's what's given rise to reformers and mystics. That's what's given rise constantly to what we now think of as modern advocates of spiritual formation. Religion from within. This means that perceiving our problems as out there, right? So for some people out there is the culture wars. 
or it's political denomination or political parties that we don't agree with, or it's the denomination we left, or it's immigrants, or it's social media, or it's other races, or the opposite gender. And these things are an adventure in missing the point that these very real human elements, they don't come out of the blue, but they are products of a heart. And our reactions to them is the overflow of our heart. So the main point, I think it's verse 15, that Jesus is making here is that the evil which defiles is not out there, it's in here. And he says, if you look at your text, there is nothing outside a person that can defile him. Now, the reason this is a big deal is that the Jews of his day thought completely the opposite. That, that look at me, what defiles me is if I touch a leper. That, that defiles me. Or what defiles me is non-kosher food passes my lips, touches my tongue, that defiles me. So everything that they intuitively thought was true and real was that sources of defilement are external to me. And so this is like mind-blowing. Jesus is upending thousands of years of intuitive senses of religion and saying, no, that's actually not the way this works. If you look at your text, it's the things that come out of a person. That is to say, from within human designs and desires and loves of the heart, those are the things that underlie and motivate our actions and words, and that's what defiles us. For from within, Jesus says, and this is, again, this is so radical, from within, from out of the heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, coveting, deceit, envy, that long list of things. So the Pharisees, and so again, I, I just want you to, don't think of the Pharisees as like little ancient Darth Vader's. Like, think of the Pharisees as really sincere and think of them as trying really hard to get it right. But in their misguidedness, they appear to be or are in fact hypocrites or they fall into teaching the traditions of men. Well, what's the traditions of men? It's just a couple thousand years of religious hand-me-downs. But they're trying to get it right. And like I said, everybody thinks they're the best people. Like, if they're not getting it right, no one can even imagine who was. So Jesus uses them an example saying, now th the way they practice religion is in proper hand washing and, and the proper washing of, of various kinds of dishes. So they're trying really hard to keep the highly developed, try to picture this, you know, thousands of years of highly developed, really specific purity regulations. They're trying super hard to get that right. And I would ask you to hold in your mind then this important contrast to me that I think is a lot of what makes religion go wrong in our day and maybe any day. And that is kind of an external trying on the one hand versus an internal training or forming on the other hand. So they're caught. And what they really needed was authoritative insight. And so again, I just want you to hear, as we've been studying Mark, you've seen a lot of power Casting out demons, healing the sick, the stilling of storms, the multiplying of bread and fish. You've seen a lot of power. And I just want you to consider with me this morning, this teaching is just another kind of power. Mark is showing Jesus's authoritative power, his authoritative insights. And 
at this point in my walk with Jesus, part of the reason I always playfully say I'm a Jesus freak, I mean, I mean it, but I say it playfully, is stuff like this. It's a genius. He's not simply a mechanism for us to go to heaven when we die. He cannot be reduced to the shedding of his blood, as unspeakably important as that is. These are genius insights from the creator for how the creatures are supposed to find human flourishing. It's stunningly important. I know people physically sick who are better off than the religiously confused. The religiously confused are sometimes devastated and they devastate out of their devastation. This is every bit as important as what comes next in the story, for instance, we didn't read it today, but the healing of the Syrophoenician woman. Well, there Mark is showing how this is, this is gonna break out to the Gentiles as well. And so Mark wants us to see the power of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, the greatness of Jesus. In this case, this authoritative insight about the place and role and hope for outcomes of religious practices. Now, not in this passage, of course, but in another passage in Matthew 11, Jesus talks about how he himself is doing it and how he invites us to do it when he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble of, oh. Oh, so that's core to Jesus. Even his own sense of his own heart. And note the adjectives he uses to display his heart. Gentle and humble. Can you imagine driving down the 405 and seeing one of those big new, you know, um, billboards, you know, the kind that light up and they, they turn? Can you see like somebody running for Senate and it said, gentle and humble of heart? Or somebody who's you know, applying to be in a C-suite somewhere and they have on the top of their resume to be CFO or COO or CEO or something like you know, uh, Jim Smith, humble and gentle of heart, right? That would go out faster than my blank page two, right? <laughs> like we don't need that here, we need tough, you know. We need smart. So do you see how what's set before us is like an intuitive ink blot kind of religion or a religion of the heart. So when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, this again, when, when the Jews would have heard this, it would have been like, Poosh! because the, the most um, sort of famous or the most often used analog, analogy of the law or uh, yeah, symbolism for the law would have been yoke. That the law was something that, that, that God put on his people and it was a yoke. Are you, are you following me here? So for Jesus to have put my, the little word my in front of yoke, again, would have been, you can't do that. Like the Torah is God's yoke and he put it on his people. But Jesus says, no, take my yoke upon you. Take my way of training in righteousness. Take my way of formation. Take my way of, of becoming God's people and, and learning to come into human flourishing and learn from me. And then you have that very important little logical connective for I am gentle and humble in heart. 
So we get to the, the kind of crux of the accusation in the passage, and I forget which verse this is, but you can find it there. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And what's happening here is they're basically saying, look, in contrast to our scrupulous, fastidious, impeccable keeping of the law, your 12 followers are condemned under the purity laws. Like they're literally standing here in a circle around Jesus maybe, and they're, they're literally saying, you're, you're guys, you're condemned. You have broke the purity laws. But Jesus is thinking, yeah, but these guys, they're becoming alive in me and alive in God's kingdom. So yes, they're messing up what you think religion is supposed to be, but they're becoming actually what religion is supposed to be. You see, the way we read the Old Testament properly is to understand that the purity laws were meant to alert people to the fact that it's the poison wells of human motivations that's the real problem with human beings and the real issue with us not living in the image of God. That the law was meant to be like a tutor or a kindergarten. You know, the, the, I think that's a German word. That, that German word kindergarten means preparatory. Preparing for something else. And this is what the law was meant to be. It was meant to guide us to the deeper notions of purity that springs from the motives and loves of the heart, not from something that's been put on us or our interaction with the world. And what Jesus knows and what Mark's trying to tell us is this is what the inbreaking of the kingdom addresses and fulfills and makes possible. This is why it's so important to know that Jesus' miracles over nature, his miracles over the demoniacs, his miracles over broken bodies is meant to show us that this teaching is authoritative. This is what humankind is supposed to be like in the image of God. So then what are we supposed to do about these teachings of Jesus? Like, how does one pursue religion from the heart out? I think it actually raises a bigger question. What do we intend to do? Like, do we actually intend to somehow deal with our heart? And if we do, then what practices do we employ? Well, the first thing I think we can say is that external trying never works, as I've said. I don't think it's not been possible in my life and in, I think everybody else I've known, it's not possible to just sort of stop being bad. But what is possible is to cultivate love and cultivate the virtue that flows from it and that we do so through the intelligent. It's really important, I think, that you get these descriptors, that we do this through the intelligent, grace-based, spirit-empowered uses of the spiritual disciplines. This is how we do it. We, like, we take Jesus at his word. We say religion is a matter of the heart and that the proper use and interactions with religion, therefore, has to do with our heart. And we don't have direct access to it, right? We can't just bend it like we bend our fingers or bend our arms. We don't have that kind of direct access to our inner person. Therefore, it takes indirect effort. It takes training off the spot so that on the spot we can live as if we're yoked to Jesus. So we do it through things like solitude. Well, why, Todd? Why from the earliest mothers and fathers of the church to James Bryan Smith? Like, why practice solitude? Well, simple, it just increases our focus on God. Or fasting, why do we fast? Because in fasting, we learn freedom from our desire. We learn we're not gonna die if we don't have what we want when we want it. 
It just teaches us that then, then we can live into that. Then when you're in an important moment of life, having fasted enough, you would know that, oh, I don't have to have what I want right now. I'm safe. The Lord is my shepherd. I'm in the care of another. I'm okay here. Or worship, why do we worship? Why is that a part of our weekly spiritual practices? Because worship focuses our adoration and thereby heals disordered desires, right? Remember when Jesus said, you know, you can't love God and mammon, that a desire for the one feeds contempt for the other? So why do we worship? Because it aligns our adoration and then disordered desires begin to fall off or things like secret service, practicing true altruism, which just simply means to do something for somebody else, knowing that you'll never be thanked for it. No one will ever know you even did it. For years, I practiced that. Well, why? Heals your ego. See, these are the sort of training off the spot so that on the spot, we can do what's necessary. So landing this plane, I just think a big part of Jesus's brilliance is that I'll speak for myself, I can't speak for you, but speaking for myself, and I wonder about others, that we usually just don't understand what moves us. I think most of the time we go through life doing our best, but not really knowing those deep drivers in us. Those places at the deepest levels of our souls. And this is why the scriptures are full of sentences like this, especially the Psalms, but it's everywhere. Search me, O God. It's everywhere. Maybe not in those exact four words. Search me, O God. But that theme, that deep desire is everywhere. Well, why? Why is it everywhere? Because we live from this hidden, mysterious, unseen drivers in us. We don't have direct access to it. It's not like lifting weights. It's slow. It's two steps forward, one step back. And so we cry out constantly, search me, oh God. For a nice summary thought here, I believe this is from Willard's book, uh, Renovation of the Heart. For the life we live out, outward, in our moments, hours, days, and years, wells up from a hidden depth. Thus, it's what in our heart that matters more than anything else, for whom we become and what becomes of us. And so the Jesus notion here, the great insight is that those with a well-kept heart are persons who are prepared for and capable of responding to the situations of life that are good and right. And see, this is what made the, the Pharisees apparent hypocrites, is that they had this fastidious keeping of the purity laws, but had no outward sign of actually loving anybody or really caring for anybody. They had these massive PR campaigns, ancient PR campaigns to show everybody how they were right. And so the sense of everybody around them is, well, we're the wrong ones. Now, how much fun would it be to have coffee with somebody like that? Oh, have a seat, little wrong one. I'm gonna have a dinner party for all you wrong ones. And this is what made them feel like hypocrites, but it was inadvertent. Are you with me here? They were, they were trying, they were just messed up. And Jesus is saying, no, there actually is a proper role for religion, but it's heartward, it's inward, it's indirect, it's slow, but come follow me. And I'll help you. We'll do it together. In my 
book on temptation. So in that book, I, I paraphrase Proverbs 23 this way. Put everything you have into the care of your heart, the hidden, determinative, and causative view, for your heart determines what your life amounts to. I didn't make that up, and I didn't even really get it from Solomon. That was my way of trying to pour the Jesus movement into that little proverb, to pour the genius of Jesus's authoritative insight of what religion is. Put everything you have into the care of your heart, the hidden, determinative, and causative you. For your heart determines what your life amounts to. Amen.